bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, December 28, 2010. This week's podcast is a unique podcast, where I divert from the standard format. The Tax Credit Tuesday podcast typically reviews breaking news items and analyzes recent developments. This week, I'll take a look at the 2010 year in review and discuss the major developments of 2010 for the low income housing tax credit, for the new market tax credit, for renewable energy tax credits, and for the historic tax credit. I'll also talk a little bit about what lies ahead for each tax credit in 2011. So if you're ready, let's get started. For the low-income housing tax credit, at this time last year, there was cautious optimism that much delayed affordable housing rental housing production would occur in 2010. A report released in January of 2010 by Harvard University's Joint Center for Housing Studies started the year with a call for changes to the low-income housing tax credit program to mitigate its vulnerabilities and increase investor demand. In February, lawmakers began working again on a 2010 tax extenders package in a process that we now know took the rest of the year to complete. During the course of the year, housing supporters banded together under the banner of the ACTION, or Action Campaign. The Action Campaign spent the bulk of 2010 advocating for several consensus proposals designed to reinvigorate the tax credit market for affordable housing. These proposals were extending the Section 1602 Cash Grant Exchange Program, expanding the carryback period for low-income housing tax credits to five years, currently it's one year, and reducing the restrictions on the ability of certain pastor entities to claim the low-income housing tax credit. Unfortunately, as we all know, none of these proposals became law. In March of 2010, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development announced that it would use a system similar to and based on the current Tenant Rental Assistance Certification System, or TRACS, system to collect data about tenants of low-income housing tax credit properties. This data collection is required by the Housing and Economic Recovery Act of 2008, or HERA. At the time of this recording, state agencies had begun releasing updated forms for low-income housing tax credit property managers and owners to use in reporting that information. Novogratik and Company is investigating the issue and will report on the state agency's progress in the February 2011 issue of the Journal of Tax Credits. In May of 2010, HUD announced that it was developing a study, a study of the low-income housing tax credit program after 15 years. HUD's Office of Policy Development and Research commissioned the study to learn what happens to low-income housing tax credit properties after the first 15 years when the original use restrictions for properties that received tax credit allocations before 1990 expired, and when some tax credit properties funded after that date were able to leave the program. Then in August, HUD changed its policy on the prohibition of the escrowing of tax credit equity. The change bars HUD from requiring the escrowing of equity from the sales of low-income housing tax credits, historic tax credits, and new market tax credits for HUD-insured mortgages. Then in October, the IRS announced that there were no unused 2010 low-income housing tax credit carryover amounts, 
to be allocated to qualified states. This is because there is no national pool amount from which the LIHTCs could be redistributed. Later that month, the IRS announced the inflation-adjusted low-income housing tax credit and private activity bond caps for the year 2011. Now, for calendar year 2011, the amount used to calculate the state low-income housing tax credit is the greater of $2.15 multiplied by the state population, or $2.465 million. The amount used to calculate the state ceiling for the volume cap for private activity bonds in 2011 is the greater of $95 multiplied by the state population, or $277.8 million. Now, looking ahead to 2011, at the time of this recording, Novogratz and Company was collecting information from state tax credit and bond allocating agencies regarding their 2011 caps and application rounds. Those figures will be posted online at www.taxcredithousing.com after January 3rd of 2011. Looking also ahead to 2011, the Action Coalition reports that it is preparing its members to educate the 93 new members of the House and 13 new members of the Senate, 106 new members in total, on the merits of the Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program in an acutely deficit-minded congressional environment. The Action Coalition plans to reconvene for an in-person meeting in Washington, D.C. during the beginning of the year to discuss ideas and strategies regarding how the campaign will move forward going into the 112th Congress. Low-income housing tax credit supporters are also pursuing other non-legislative routes to bolster the tax credit program, such as broadening Community Reinvestment Act assessment areas and making accounting rule changes to expand the use of the effective yield method. Novogratz and Company is taking a particularly active role in efforts to expand the use of the effective yield accounting method. On the legislative action front, several items are getting more consideration than others. In a deficit-mindful environment, there is concern regarding any legislative initiative that has material revenue loss. Items being actively considered for a short list of legislative changes include proposals which may be considered, which would require congressional action, but fall in the low-revenue-cost bucket. They would be extending or making permanent the 9% floor for the credit percentage for volume cap low-income housing tax credits. The current 9% floor expires December 31, 2012. So this issue will rapidly become a very critical issue to low-income housing tax credit developers and investors. In addition, the low-revenue-cost bucket includes broadening qualifying income levels for rural projects and creating a targeted and limited Section 1602 Cash Grant Exchange Program for Rural Areas. Now, items that are also being considered but have larger revenue costs would be creating a flat 4% credit for acquisition and tax and bond finance projects and expanding credit carryback for low-income housing tax credits from one year to five years. If you have other ideas about how to improve the low-income housing tax credit, particularly ideas with a low revenue cost, please send an email to cpas at novaco.com or send one directly to me, michael.novagratic at novaco.com. Turning to the new market tax credit year in review, in February 2010, President Obama helped start the year with a call for a two-year extension through 2011 of the new market tax credit. Such an extension, as our listeners know, was ultimately passed 10-plus months later, on December 16, 2010. The extension provided $3.5 billion for 2010 and $3.5 billion for 2011. 
In April, the 2010 New Market Statute Allocation Availability, or Notice of Allocation Availability, was released with an NMTC application deadline of June 2, 2010. The CDFI fund ultimately received 250 applications for the 2010 allocation round. That's the same number submitted in 2009. However, the amount of allocation authority requested in 2010 increased by a billion dollars to $23.5 billion, that being over the previous year. During 2010, the market for qualified equity investments, QEIs, has remained robust. Through the first three quarters of calendar year 2010, more than $3.1 billion in QEIs had been raised. That surpasses the total raise for all of 2009, $2.8 billion, and is approaching the $3.73 billion raised in 2008. Also during 2010, the IRS released two bits of guidance that were quite helpful to the new market tax credit community. First, they issued guidance on the leverage model, which clarified that recourse debt can be used to fund leverage debt made to the investor fund making a qualified equity investment. And then secondly, guidance clarified that the passive activity rules do not limit the ability of taxpayers to claim the new market tax credit. Now, unfortunately, the alternative minimum tax might and does limit the ability of individual taxpayers to use the new market tax credit. December 2010 saw both relief and disappointment to the new market tax credit community. Relief in that the new market tax credit was extended for 2010 and 2011, and disappointment in that the authorized amount was $3.5 billion versus the expected and hoped for $5 billion. There was also a disappointment that the ability to offset the new market tax credit against the alternative minimum tax was not included in the final tax bill. And as I mentioned before, while the passive activity relief and clarification was issued by the IRS, since the new market tax credit cannot offset the alternative minimum tax, the ability of individuals to invest in the new market tax credits continues to be very limited. Now, looking ahead to 2011, in anticipation of an extension passing, Donna Gambrell had said in early December that the fund was prepared to make an award announcement in January 2011. Director Gambrell also foreshadowed a number of important steps that the CDFI fund is taking to enhance the new market tax credit program. For example, as I discussed in last week's podcast, the Urban Institute is conducting a comprehensive multi-year evaluation of the new market tax credit program. In February of 2011, the Urban Institute will gather new market tax credit project data that supplements existing CDFI fund administration data. This data will include case-style data collection related to 80 sampled new market tax credit projects, a survey of representatives of 380 qualified active loan community businesses, and a survey of 380 local community economic development officials. Director Gambrell says the CDFI fund expects the report to be completed by the fall of 2011. In addition, Director Gambrell said the CDFI fund has been working with the Treasury Department and the Internal Revenue Service to propose several new measures to expand support for the New Market Tax Credit Program. Most recently, the CDFI fund worked with the IRS to try and determine whether the IRS regulations can be modified to encourage more investments in operating businesses. And we do expect something to be coming from this sometime soon. We just don't know how quickly we'll reach that period of time. We don't know what soon means. Director Gambrell noted that the process for reviewing and approving these measures is quite lengthy. 
and can only say that the process is underway and the City of Fund is working very closely with the Internal Revenue Service and Treasurer's Office of Tax Policy. So we'll find out how soon, soon is soon. Treasury also continues its work on the targeted population and new market tax credit recapture regulations. Finally, we do not expect to get an update on the definition of low-income communities or redesignation of low-income communities based on the 2010 census results until 2012. Now, turning to renewable energy tax credits. As 2010 began, the Recovery Act's renewable energy provisions moved to center stage in the renewable energy finance arena. Starting in January, with President Obama announcing the award of $2.3 billion in Recovery Act Advanced Energy Manufacturing Tax Credits for Clean Energy Manufacturing Projects. 183 projects in 43 states received awards. These awards were projected to create tens of thousands of high-quality clean energy jobs and the domestic manufacturing of advanced clean energy technologies, including solar, wind, and energy management technologies. This according to the Department of Energy. In February 2010, President Obama's fiscal year 2011 budget proposed including an additional $5 billion in credits for the Section 48 Cap-C Advanced Energy Manufacturing Tax Credit. Then in March and again in June, the Treasury Department issued much-anticipated guidance regarding what constitutes the beginning of construction for the Section 1603 Renewable Energy Tax Credit Cash Grant Program. This because the Section 1603 Renewable Energy Tax Credit Cash Grant Exchange Program was scheduled to expire at the end of 2010. And then throughout 2010, this Renewable Energy Cash Grant Program provided much-needed support for the financing of renewable energy projects. Starting in early summer 2010, supporters of renewable energy began to issue calls for the extension of the Section 1603 Cash Grant Program. And then, in the final package of tax extenders approved by Congress earlier this month, the Section 1603 Program was renewed for another year through 2011. Unfortunately, the Section 48 Cap-C Advanced Energy Manufacturing Tax Credit was not similarly extended. Looking ahead to 2011, with the extension of the Section 1603 Cash Grant Program, the renewable energy industry is projecting continued growth and job creation in 2011. Earlier this month, as renewable energy trade groups urged Congress to extend the construction deadline, of the Section 1603 program, they projected that an extension could create 20,000 new jobs in the wind industry in 2011. Similarly, the solar industry estimates that the extension of the Section 1603 deadline will create 25,000 more jobs next year. If renewed again, the solar energy estimates the Section 1603 cash grant program could create 40,000 more jobs in 2012. Geothermal energy supporters projected that a 1603 extension would lead to the creation of 11,200 jobs in that sector. Likewise, the trade groups say an extension will also lead to the creation of thousands of jobs in the biomass and hydropower sectors. Legislatively, the renewable energy communities are likely to begin the year thankful that the cash grant program was extended for one more year, but prepared to work the halls of Congress, the White House, and the Treasury Building to build support for further extension of the Section 1603 program and to see that the Section 48 Cap-C Advanced Energy Manufacturing Tax Credit receives additional funding. Now turning to the historic tax credit year in review, in January of 2010, Novogratz & Company 
introduced a new column in the Journal of Tax Credits called History and the Hill. The column is authored by John Lee Tetrell, and during 2010, he followed the activities of the Historic Tax Credit Coalition, the first industry-led public policy group dedicated to historic preservation issues. Among other things, the coalition's activities in 2010 included supporting the Community Restoration and Revitalization Act, which was a package of legislative enhancements to the historic tax credits. Also in January, Senators Jim Webb and Mark Warner introduced the Rehabilitation of Historic Schools Act of 2010. The bill, which sought to provide a tax credit for communities to partner with private sector developers to rehabilitate the nation's older school buildings, was a companion bill to H.R. 4133, which was introduced in the House by Representative Eric Cantor in late 2009. The measure would have changed the provision in the Federal Rehabilitation Tax Credit that restricts renovation of older public school buildings. Now, despite bipartisan support, the bill did not advance in Congress in the 111th session. February brought some of the historic tax credit community's biggest news of the year, a landmark report that described the positive economic impact of the historic tax credit. Entitled The First Annual Report on the Economic Impact of the Federal Historic Tax Credit, the study found that the Federal Historic Tax Credit is a highly efficient job creator that accounts for the creation of 1.8 million new jobs over the life of the program. The report also suggested that the economic activity leveraged by the historic tax credit returns more tax revenue to the U.S. Treasury than the cost of implementing the program. At the state level now, there was a wide range of activity related to state historic tax credits during 2010. The following is a sampling of some of that activity. Delaware and Massachusetts extended their existing state historic tax credits, and Minnesota enacted a new state historic tax credit. Maryland passed the legislation to expand its existing historic tax credit. New York passed the legislation to improve its historic tax credit, but then it also passed legislation that defers those historic tax credits earned between January 1, 2010 and January 1, 2014 that exceed $2 million. Similarly, Oklahoma suspended more than two dozen tax credit programs and deferred payments by two years for tax credits, including tax credits for historic building rehabilitation. The moratorium and deferred payment schedule were enacted as part of efforts to reduce a state budget gap, which was the same motivation in New York. And in Missouri, a widely publicized review and evaluation of all state tax credits was undertaken, and the resulting recommendations include a proposal to lower the cap for the state historic tax credit. As the year came to a close, the historic tax credit community got some good news when Congress passed the Tax Relief, Unemployment Insurance Reauthorization, and Job Creation Act of 2010. Now, that's quite a mouthful. Among other things, the measure extends the increase in the rehabilitation tax credit for property placed in service through the end of 2011 in the Gulf Opportunity, or GO Zone. History in the Hill columnist John Lee Tetrell discusses what this extension will mean for historic tax credit development in the GO Zone in the January 2011 issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. Now, looking ahead to 2011, next year, the Historic Tax Credit Coalition says it will continue to advocate for the provisions of the Community Restoration and Revitalization Act. The coalition reports that while the measure stalled in 2010, 
significant progress was made on other legislative and regulatory fronts, laying a strong foundation for renewed efforts in the coming session. The group says that the Community Restoration and Revitalization Act had support in the House and the Senate, but for it to pass, it would likely need to be part of a larger tax vehicle, like an energy tax bill or tax reform. So the introduction of such a package would be one key factor to historic tax credit provision success next year. Another key factor will be the change control of the House Ways and Means Committee. As the lead Democrat on the bill, Representative Schwartz, she garnered 77 co-sponsors last year, including 13 co-sponsors of those members of the actual Ways and Means Committee. But she'll be in the minority party in the coming session. So the Historic Tax Credit Coalition and its partners in the preservation community will need to recruit a lead Republican to reintroduce the bill. Then on the Senate side, while the Democrats did retain control, Senator Lincoln, last session's lead Democratic sponsor, lost her re-election bid. So as in the Senate, the Community Restoration and Revitalization Act will need a new lead sponsor. John Lee Tetrell reports the Historic Tax Credit Coalition is currently soliciting ideas for the new bill. And this bill will be introduced at some point after Congress reconvenes in January 2011. In addition to building support for the Community Restoration and Revitalization Act, the coalition has worked simultaneously with the executive branch to eliminate regulatory barriers to the modernization of the historic tax credit. For example, historic preservation advocates will need to be vigilant as the financial regulators write regulations related to the Dodd-Frank bill's Volcker rule. They have to be vigilant to make sure that the historic tax credit's hard-won inclusion of historic tax credit transactions in the bill's public welfare investment definition is not watered down in the actual writing of the implementation of the rule. One other item worth mentioning, which I hinted at throughout my summary, is that Congress will be very deficit-conscious in 2011. Congress will be mindful of cutting both direct expenditures as well as indirect federal tax expenditures. Tax expenditures like the tax credits we cover every week on the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. In this environment, 2011 may ultimately be a successful year if all we do is maintain everything that we have today. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. This is the last Tax Credit Tuesday podcast for the year 2010. We at Novogratic and Company wish you a happy new year. Please join me again next week for the first Tax Credit Tuesday podcast of 2011. A new Congress is sworn in next week, and legislative, administrative, and judicial developments will start again. Also, please remember that Novogratz and Company will kick off its Affordable Housing Conference series in Miami on January 20th and 21st of 2011. We also kick off our new Markets Tax Credit Conference series in San Diego on January 27th and 28th. There's still time to register for either or both conferences. Simply go to the Novaco.com website, click on Events at the top right of the page. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening.